Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. This is Jacqueline Witt. I'm the War Room podcast editor and a professor of strategy here at the Army War College. I'm joined today by three colleagues uh, for a water cooler style roundtable podcast. Uh, so we have Emily Knowles, who is the director of the Remote Warfare Program with the Oxford Research Group. We have Colonel Tino Perez, who is a faculty member here at the Army War College and a political theorist. So that makes him super fun at parties. And we have Andrew Hill, who is the editor in chief of the War Room and the chair of strategic leadership here at the Army War College. So you were supposed to say, I need no introduction, like because that's the most awesome. I, 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 <laughs> needs I, no introduction. I totally missed that opportunity. Sorry, we also have Andrew Hill, who needs no introduction. Now that he's already been introduced. Now that, that he's already been introduced. We'll include all of this. Um, <laughs> Buck is going to be very angry with us. Um, so today we want to have a conversation about a distinction that is sometimes made within the strategic world. And it sort of has entered the vocabulary, I think, of strategists and even to some policymakers. And that is this distinction between the nature of war and the character of war. Um, and so the, the idea is that the nature of war is enduring, but the character of war might change. And so that's where we're going to that's where we're going to start. And my first question to the group will be is this a is this a useful distinction to make i'm gonna go out on a limb and just say no okay andrew why so so i think what is interesting to us is what changes i think change is is the thing that we're most concerned with and to the extent that uh the conduct or character of war changes that's interesting if there is some aspect of this that that is unchanging, I, I don't know why we should care about that part, really. I, I, I mean, because to the extent that it's unchanging, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing why that actually helps us from a strategic standpoint. And I mean, like actually conducting war, developing strategy, implementing strategy. So right now, for example, this discussion the character nature discussion is going on in talking about artificial intelligence and its impact on war. And there are some people who are saying, oh, you know, artificial intelligence ha has changed the nature of war or uh, may change the nature of war. And of course, the uh, cardinals who are protecting the dogma of that principle. And I don't know, Tino, is it Clausewitz who really like first formalize this i don't think so i think uh, you would have to go to colin gray yeah <laughs> really? so i mean we it's want going. to so attribute this to clausewitz because that sounds older i think they'll cite clausewitz uh and and he in many places is contradictory about many things but one of them is about this nature and character and using those two terms but uh i, I don't think you find there like, a, a, like a phrase that says the nature of war is x and it is unchanging you'll find it um, but I don't think it, it, it's as insistent 
and as categorical as is uh, the, the the fans of the distinction make it out to be. People get emotional about this, right? Yeah. Uh, and and this is uh, Colin Gray is one of them. Uh, the other one, H.R. Uh, McMaster, was another one who insisted upon uh, this distinction. My my critique, and there's many critiques I have, but one of them is that for a crowd that likes to say words mean things, to say the nature of something is X or Y is actually an academic discipline. Right. Uh, uh, it's metaphysics. It's ontology. And, uh, and even Hannah Arendt, who was a political theorist, would not talk about human nature. She talked about the human condition. So I think it's much better to say, okay, if we want to study war, let's look at its manifestations in history. How does it appear? And let's look at it in the contemporary environment. And how does it appear? And we make claims that are empirically verifiable about that. But this distinction is unnecessary. To me, the, the, the critique I have, which is, I think, different from yours, Andrew, and a little bit different from yours, Tino, is that I think it makes us, or strategic thinkers, think that they're saying something profound when, in fact, they are not. Uh, which is to say that if you if you simplified it, all that means is that some things change and some things stay the same. And that is true, but it's also unhelpful. And so for me, the the next question has to be, so what? Why does the distinction matter? And this does get to your point, yeah. right? Why do we care that some things change and some things stay the same? And does it matter which which things we find enduring and which things we find changing um so i so those are i I think three different but related critiques emily you're in a sort of different space than the three of us yeah Um, i was gonna say to nail my colors to the mask directly as a think tanker rather than anyone who's been associated with an academic institution for a while i mean we may occasionally be guilty of throwing in the odd reference to clausewitz or other military political theorists in order to relate to an audience, um, if it's a military audience who's listening, sometimes that's helpful. But does it does it form a pillar of our analysis or does it actually inform the recommendations that we put forwards or the way that we understand and analyse contemporary theatres? No, largely. I mean, I, I'm with you on the, the distinction only matters if the distinction is useful. In, in terms of actually understanding what's happened now and why that might be different or the same to what's happened before. Um, and I just have to say that I, I find that the th- theoretical frameworks that, that are used in a lot of academia, I end up asking myself the question, so what, quite a lot when I'm looking at, you know, what are we currently doing in the counter-ISIS campaign? How does this help me understand uh, operations in Somalia against Al-Qaeda? Will this help me make better analysis or... Um, policymakers make better decisions. Um, so I, I do occasionally now skip through those bits of articles and kind of get to the meat of the, okay, we've got that out of the way and now let's talk about you know this specific case or that specific case where I feel like I can connect more readily to the information sure. available. Yeah, I mean, from a, I think from a sort of, Tino, you brought in this question of metaphysics, right? And like the, the core question of what is something? And I, I guess if you if you were able to nail down what war is in some fundamental enduring way, then it would help you to understand how to c- conduct war in in ways that are enduring. Uh, so you don't have to 
to use a, a cliche, reinvent the wheel, right? Every time you find yourself in a war, like, I, oh, I understand this thing that is fundamental and enduring about war, and therefore I can kind of go back to that every time. My counter to that would be that, generally speaking, that is our problem. <laughs> like, kind of going back to something that is familiar to us seems like a very common dysfunction in in strategy or in the conduct of war. And that the other question, which is, hey, what might be different about this conflict or or different, how might it differ from what I was expecting or whatever? That's a more constructive or productive question in terms of understanding, hey, what do we need to do differently? That said, I do know, and Jackie, this kind of harkens back to the podcast we did with Con Crane, right? That, yeah, I mean, there, like not everything we do is is novel. And I, I know historians often get into this, they, they get into the, get worked up about stuff that people say is new. Like right now it's, it's gray zone, right? Hybrid warfare. Oh my gosh, that's, that's new. But no, it's not. I yeah, mean, and, that's, the, and the historians are running around going, no, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not. Not new. Right. We've seen this before. Yeah. Or we've seen something like it before. And so continuity, I think, as a historian, continuity is absolutely as important as change in explaining historical phenomena and making arguments, right. et cetera. And I think it is, I think it's important for strategists as well, but I think we have to understand why change and continuity as categories are important. And I could care less whether we call it nature or character. Right. And so the other thing though, is that the continuity this is going to sound weird, but it's like it's discontinuous continuity. I mean, it's, it's the idea that, yes, this something like this has happened before, but perhaps not in the last 25 years. Like, we have done this sort of thing before. Hybrid warfare, for example. How did the U.S. get Hawaii? You know, if you ever want to read some interesting American history in terms of, like, hybrid operations, that, that's, I think, a good example. I'm going to credit Paul Kahn for that one, that that's kind of how we got Hawaii. That's just because... Uh, it's happened before doesn't mean it's not sort of new to us or something like that. But but we still then see variety in war. I mean, we see different conf- different types of conflicts. And this is the character, right, question where to some extent the character of the war that you're in might vary. And there might be some actually novel elements like maybe nuclear weapons if you want to argue. I think maybe there's one argument to be made that nukes are like a novel aspect of the character of war but i i just i still don't I, and maybe maybe tino you can help us understand this it's it's kind of like why is there so much interest in this distinction do you think i don't know i i i, I call it a military article of faith and which is strange in an academic environment that we hold on to these things um i i do think jackie's point about continuity and change is important and so one of the things that we did in the Carlisle Scholars program was we actually taught uh, Thucydides at the end of the, the theory of war and strategy. So they were able to see, having looked at uh, different theory, theoretical approaches to war, what does appear to be the same? What did Thucydides write about that we see today? But the novelty you describe, I think, is important. Um, Emily, we were talking about this yesterday a little bit, but... W- one of the things that we need to be careful of is just because we've seen some variant of this before, we can't ignore the novelty. And it doesn't mean that if we were to put the historic historian, historians who are experts on this topic in a room, 
that they would now know how to proceed strategically to accomplish aims in the future. And, yeah, and I think that's embedded in a lot of this. And I think I think to build on that, it, it's one of the one of the points that I think fairly reasonably gets leveled at the the think tank community is that we overstate the novelty of everything. Like whatever it is that we're writing about, it's like this is the first time we've seen this, or this is you know a new and dangerous precedent, or this is somehow um, worthy of our attention now because there's been some dramatic shift in the way that we're doing, um, that we're doing warfare. And I mean, my own program was set up to examine changes in military (laughs) engagement, right? Which, which, um, really suggests that each time we're looking at, okay, well, this has happened. So therefore, what are we going to change from this? How do we understand it? But, you know, I, I, I accept the counter to that, that it's important to look back to history. It's important not to overstate the novelty of some of the things that we're seeing now. Um, But I also find that when we've been putting together kind of historical case studies then to kind of juxtapose against the contemporary ones that we're currently looking at, you kind of go, well, is it is it useful to me that you could say that the UK armed forces used partner operations to counter an insurgency in Malaya back in the colonial era? And you kind of go, well, it's useful to me in the sense that, you know, I'm not going to go around being like partner operations is something we've never done before and therefore we really need to get our act together to understand what this environment is. But then you look at actually what happened in those case studies and you go, is any of that applicable to what we're doing now? Why was Malaya successful? And successful is a loaded term in this because also not super successful for many of the populations who were yeah, on the ground in Malaya at the time. And you go, well, we interned the entire civilian population to try and separate them from what we saw as an insurgency. Um, so that we could get around the problem that we see today in some of the environments where we're operating, where it's very difficult to tell who's a combatant, who's a non-combatant. And you go, is anyone seriously suggesting that this is this is then how we proceed? When we, you look at a problem like Somalia now, you look at a problem like Libya, you go, ah, well, we've, we've seen this before in Malaya. So what we need to do is we need to intern the entire civilian population so we can separate the insurgents from the civilian population. No, no one's no one's actually really suggesting that. So then the question that I always level back is, well, then... How useful, other than to temper some of the claims that we might otherwise make about novelty, is that historical case study? Because each thing that we look at, I mean, and it even comes now when we're comparing contemporary theatres. You're looking at what's happening in Afghanistan. It's not the same as what's happening in Iraq, what's happening in Somalia or what's happening in Libya or what's happening in Mali. There are some characteristics that you can draw across the whole. You can draw some kind of truths, if you like, about how international militaries are attempting to deal with these problems but everything presents itself very differently so in terms of understanding the utility of being able to say something's new something's not new something's changing something's not changing um i mean to give a a good albeit slightly reductive example in in the recent policy report that that we released about you know lessons learned from contemporary remote warfare operations the historical context that we spent a load of time reading about to understand like the use of air power to replace the use of boots on the ground it got reduced down to one sentence in one text box on one page which i felt kind of bad about because the articles themselves are super interesting but it kind of went you know of course we know remote warfare has you know um precedents in the past we, we know about proxy warfare we know about the use of air power to um to replace the need to put british boots on the ground and here's a footnote that contains a list of historical sources for those that can, are interested to, to dig see. more into that. But actually for our policy audience and the people who are really concerned very much with the so what for whom even a sort of 20 page 
reasonably like lightly written policy document is still a stretch to expect them to wade through that's probably all you're ever going to get that's going to stick somewhere but then maybe that's okay maybe they walk away with at least being like okay all of this is happening but it's not new so emily i think part of what you're getting at is the idea that our audiences are are different right and just because something is one sentence or a paragraph in a document towards policymakers are oriented toward that audience doesn't mean that the work that went into getting to that one sentence um, is important is unimportant or irrelevant Um, as a historian I think we expect our work to be used a lot in those ways um, where people take a, a vast amount of historical argument and evidence and then distill it down into the into the most useful thing um I think, Andrew, it gets to your point as well, which is that defining something as war is itself an important act. And if we don't have an idea of what war looks like, we don't have maybe the the right set of, of responses. So if something is war, we that triggers maybe a certain way of thinking about it. Whereas if it's something other than war, we need a different set of strategic tools. Does that? I mean, it square? really it really resonates with me, just because you know, it, in terms of delineating who's responsible for dealing with whatever it is that you're facing, right? I think the moment that you put war on it, people are thinking, well, that's a military concern, or at least that's a military-led or a state-led with military support. And I don't think, like, that doesn't seem like a stupid assumption. No. And it it reminds me of, you know, a big debate that we had in our office when there are usually a couple of... um, of kind of indicators that are released each year to kind of list, you know, these are the most fragile states or these are the most violent countries or... um, and, And... on top of them about two years ago in terms of like the most violent countries we were all thinking you know well Syria at the time was experiencing and continues to experience a lot of instability um Libya and it it was Mexico that came out on top and everyone was sort of like well Mm. they're not at war Mexico's not at war there's no there's no war happening in Mexico how can we say that it's the most violent conflict and the more that you then kind of read into it and you go well actually you know structural levels of violence um, even if that's not, you know, what we would like to think of as war is still very high. And that it, it changes the way that you think about what the appropriate response is, but also what the appropriate frame for thinking about resolving those problems is, right? Whether that's a police response or a law enforcement or a military right. response or an international military intervention response versus well, this a domestic is, I mean, this is at the heart of, of conversations about the so-called global war on terror, right? Is, is a war frame the appropriate frame for that is what um, the UK and the US are involved in in Syria is is war the appropriate way to think about those conflicts and those questions are I think metaphysical and ontological to get back to to Tino's point I think we have to have those I think those are worthwhile conversations for strategists Mm. there's an author um, who published a book recently Renz Bartelson and it, the, the book is entitled War and International Thought, and he tackles this question of why it is that people are so fixated on this nature-character distinction and what is war throughout history, and he notices that it changes. But to circle back to a point that Andrew had talked about, well, why do people do this, and, and Emily's discussion sparks it, I think it's comforting for a military professional. If war is this, 
X, then that's all I need to worry about. And so if you think that war is, you know, to, to go off of Clausewitz, the use of violence or force to impose one's will on an enemy, well, then you're really close to a definition of war that, that, that captures the ordinance delivery aspect of it, and you're ignoring the sociopolitical, institutional, economic, uh, cultural, uh, especially uh, ethical implications of it. And it, it's comforting because that stuff is complex, and that's the novelty uh, that I think Emily mm-hmm. in, in her research on contemporary conflicts finds. Well, and Jackie, you, you, I know, have been doing a lot of work looking at narrative and theories. You know, when you ask somebody, just a, a lay person, hey, what's a theory and what does it do for us? It's actually a very challenging question for most people to answer. And I'm not talking about theories of war. I'm talking about a theory Any, of anything. Theory. Okay. I think one, one of the things that a theory does in a sort of more simplistic way is that it, it kind of tells us what is in and what is out. Mm-hmm. Like, w- what is this thing that I'm trying to understand and explain? What's inside of it and then what's, what's not in it? But the other thing that oftentimes our theories do is they give us, especially I think in the social sciences, they give us narratives. You know, they're a little bit of the story of something. And Emily, when you were talking about um, your work and how you think about this question or, or don't worry about it, right, in your work, I was struck that a lot of, I think, what you're describing is this tension between wanting to have a narrative that you can communicate pretty easily to an audience. Hey, this war is about this. And then having a narrative that is too powerful where it blinds you to some things that are happening that are, are not about that. Counterinsurgency is its own kind of narrative. But uh, as you pointed out, counterinsurgency in Iraq and counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and I don't know, anywhere else in the history of warfare, they, those things in their particulars probably look really different. And so my question is kind of to the extent that, that a theory of war is giving you a, a narrative for what this is about fundamentally are the costs of that too high when it comes to opening our minds to other possibilities for for what we're doing or what this might be about i mean i think this is a place where some disciplinary differences are important so historians are a terribly anti-theoretical bunch um just in general, not you'll find you'll find specific historians, right, who who love it. But in what you'll hear a lot of times is right that which can be generalized is not worth saying, and that which is worth saying is not generalizable, right? That they're very concerned with the particulars um, and pointing out the differences and pointing out these sort of discontinuities, even as they're thinking about the the things that can be um, the conclusions maybe that can be drawn more more widely that's a really different approach to the study of problems than say a a political scientist might take which is a a field a discipline that is much more theoretically driven um and so i think you've got you've got different ways of, of dealing with it and my own my own approach is that more 
more is better. And so we, we can't have a world that's only populated by historians, but we also can't have a world that's only populated by theoreticians and people working on the theoretical aspects. Um, yeah. I mean, I know Tino, you, you talk a lot about what we might call like mid-level theory in political science as a useful tool for strategists. So maybe, man, I don't know, maybe you can come to the, to the theorist rescue now that yeah. So in international relations, much of the scholarship today, they're not really talking about the three IR theories that, that, that we like teach our, our liberalism, uh, realism, uh, constructivism and, and realism. Right. And and what they've been focusing on for, for several years now is is something called middle range theory. We're not going to make big claims about how the world works, but we're going to look at specific dynamics. For example, civil war onset or the fragmentation and alliance formation among uh, rebel groups. And they're trying to tell, uh, to use Andrew's term, they, they use this term, causal stories. They're describing causal mechanisms for how this happens. Now, I think this is useful because let's say I want to take students through a study of civil war. Well, we look at a bundle of theories uh, that talk about civil war onset. Let's look about a bundle of theories about uh, fragmentation, alliance formation among rebel groups. Let's look at a bundle of theories of how it is that civilians protect themselves and either work with rebel governance or not. Let's look at a bundle of theories of how third-party actors influence and then how it closes out. When you do that, you notice that a theory does two things for you. It gives you a set of uh, elements that are part of the story, and then it tells you how they're related in a causal way. And as a military professional, I think it's useful to collect these, map them out, and then look for comp competing and complementary causal stories. And that's where the richness and the complexity comes from in terms of doing analysis. So it's not about looking for a theory to explain things. It's about using theories, multiple theories. We might, in narrative terms, we might call it sort of multivocality or something like that. Um, right. I think that's what we do in, in the schoolhouse. But we, are, not... we are demonstrably bad. I mean, and I, when I say we, I mean humanity, not just Americans. We are bad at entertaining multiple causal stories. And with Andrew scolding all of humanity, this seems like the perfect place to end part one of the nature versus character discussion. Join us again in part two to see if anyone comes to humanity's defense and listen to what we have to say about everything else we get wrong. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com dot armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.